8 this morning, we would look at the first four verses. Matthew, the 8th chapter, begin reading in verse 1. Matthew 8, verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. We have come now to the conclusion of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We've been there for quite a while. It is what is characterized in Matthew's gospel as the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. And we have seen, as we have studied these chapters, how our Lord in this sermon identifies those who are the subjects of this kingdom, as well as laying down the law, that is, the rule of this kingdom. This is the king himself proclaiming the good news of the kingdom that he himself is inaugurating. And if you look at the last two verses of chapter 7, you'll see that his preaching has great effect upon the hearers. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribal or the rabbinical method of teaching was basically to quote the fathers. They would say, oh, Rabbi so-and-so said this about this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this about this, so we sort of think this is the way it is. And in the midst of that kind of teaching comes Jesus, who over and over again in this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount will say something to this effect, Ye have heard that it hath been said of old, but I say unto you, Here is one who takes an authoritative stance that says no matter who has said what, I'm telling you the way it is. They were astounded because he taught them as one who had authority, one who knew what he was talking about. Something they were very unfamiliar with. Now authority is one of those words, there's actually two Greek words that we keep running into. The Greek word here is ekasia, means authority, like uh, a policeman has the authority to stop traffic. He walks out into the lane, he holds up his hand, he blows his whistle, and we come to a stop. Not because of his might or his power, but because of his authority. We recognize the inherent authority. And yet at the same time, the one who has authority must have some other thing behind it, namely power, a Greek word called dunamis, which is the root of our word dynamite and dynamo and dynamic, and all those words stem from this Greek root. If the one who is an authority does not have the power to back up what he says, then we simply laugh at his authority. His so-called authority is no more than good advice. Recall growing up, 
a little Texas town in the neighboring town of Kettle Mills, which was our rivalry in football, the big rivalry. They had this constable over there who had an old 59 Chevrolet that if you had a good head of speed uh, when you came in one side of Cattle Mills, there was no way on earth this guy could possibly catch you before you were out of Cattle Mills on the other side. He might have had authority, but he didn't have any power to back it up, you see. And so he was just a joke, at least among us rebel teenager types. The question is, Jesus has taken the stance of an authority, and you know that there are many out there who do this kind of thing, especially when it comes to religious matters. There's no end of people who will stand as Jesus stood and says, I'm here to tell you like it is. There will always be the Jim Jones type and so forth around who take this authoritative stance. The question is, and as we sometimes put it in our vernacular, talk is cheap. This one who is speaking in these terms certainly does not look like one who has the power to back up what he says. He's just a common man, an itinerant preacher walking around with a ragtag book of a bunch of disciples, a bunch of ex-fishermen, tax collectors, riffraff, we would say, the lower sort of folks. He certainly does not look like someone who could back up what he says with any degree of power. But it is here in the first verses of Matthew chapter 8 that we see the first miracle that Matthew records. Now he's made allusion to miracles and healings and so forth back in Matthew chapter 4. But this is the first explicit example of our Lord's healing power that we'll find in Matthew's gospel. And comparing it to the account in Mark and in Luke you learn that actually this probably took place before the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Chronologically, it was probably something that happened a little earlier in Jesus' ministry. And the question arises then, why did Matthew wait until now to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount to insert this, which actually probably happened a little earlier? Well, I believe it is for this reason that he is showing us that our Lord not only took this authoritative stance that I say unto you, but he now, in throughout the rest of the next chapter, will show you instant after instant after instance where his power, his authority is backed up by his power. This is a striking example here in the case of this leper. I'm to, for you to fully appreciate what's going on here, you'll have to understand a little bit about the disease of leprosy. And I'm going to tone this down because we've got to eat in a little while. And you can go to the medical dictionaries, you can read the historical accounts of leprosy, what it was like to have this disease, and trust me, it'll take your appetite away. It began generally with a patch of white or pinkish blotch, generally on your face. But from there it began to spread over the entire body. Generally the eyebrows disappeared. Generally then tumors began to grow on the face in particular. But you had to understand that leprosy was not just a disease that attacked you on the outside. But at the same time all of this is going on outside. It's also attacking the internal organs as well. Oftentimes the tissues between the joints of the fingers and the toes would begin to disappear and all feeling and sense would be lost from the extremities. And so the leper was constantly injuring his fingers and his toes because he had no feeling there. 
And so infection would begin to set in and literally the extremities of the body would rot away. I read an account of a man traveling in the Middle East back about the turn of the century. He was talking about walking through this Arab, small Arab town, rounding a corner to be met by a whole group of lepers who were begging. And he said, I was confronted with noseless faces, fingerless hands, and I was, in a word, horrified. Quite simply, leprosy, you see, was the scourge of that age, much like AIDS is today. It was the scourge, but much, much worse than AIDS, because you see, it was hideously slow. Oh, it would kill you, but it sometimes took 20 years to kill you. And so you see there was the horribleness of the disease itself, but you also have to understand the religious overtones that were connected to the disease of leprosy within the nation of Israel. Now, I don't mean to imply that anyone who's sick is a greater sinner than someone who's not, or one who has leprosy is a greater sinner than others. But you have to understand that God in the law of Moses took this one disease, the most hideous, horrible disease that they knew about, and made it an example. We sing sometimes love is a many-splendored thing. It's one we can add to our repertoire, Sue, if we find the music to it. We always sing these love songs at our Valentine's banquet, and that would be a good one. Love is a many-splendored thing. What does that mean? It means that you can look at love from many different angles. It has many facets, like a gem. You can turn it this way, and it looks like this. Turn it this way, and it looks like this. Well, may I say that sin is a multifaceted thing, too. Turn it one way, it looks like guilt. Sin is that which makes us guilty. Turn it another way, it looks like rebellion. It is the heart rising up against its rightful sovereigns. When God says, "I thou shalt, we respond, I will not. When he says, you won't, we say, we will. It has that aspect. And sin sometimes in scripture is looked at in another, by another angle, it's looked at as debt. We're taught by our Lord just a few chapters ago to pray, forgive us our debtors as we've, our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now why would sin be viewed as debt? Well, since obedience to God is what we owe Him, what's His rightful due, then when we fail to pay what we owe, we are therefore in debt. You see, sin can be looked at in a number of ways, and what we're confronted with when the leper comes into picture in the Old Testament law is that sin is also to be viewed as defiling. That which is unclean, that which is vile, that which is repugnant and repulsive, that which is downright nauseating. You see, in the leper, that's the closest thing that we can find, the closest thing to illustrate how sin looks to God. We just don't have any other way to describe it. Take the most vile, the most nawsome. Take take a man who literally because of the disease of leprosy is one big, runny, oozing, pussy, sore from head to toe. And that's how sin looks in the sight of God. 
You say, well, I don't see it that way. Well, as I've reminded you, you don't ask skunks how skunks smell. You don't ask sinners how bad sin is, you see. You and I who have lived in the cesspool of sin all our lives, we've become accustomed to it. Our nostrils have become accustomed to the stench. But if we looked at it from God's point of view, he who is of holier eyes to behold sin, to whom even the angels must veil their eyes, to whom even the heavens are unclean, if we look through God's eyes, we see that sin is this horrible, disgusting, stench, vile. And it's expressed that way throughout the Old Testament. In particular, we've just been reading Isaiah's prophecy in Sunday school and in chapter 1 he diagnoses the sin of Israel saying you're just one big awesome sore from the top of your head to the sole of your feet a little later Isaiah will say that your righteousnesses the best things you've ever done are his filthy rags in the sight of God it doesn't paint a very pretty picture now under the law When a man was assumed to have leprosy, he was brought to the priest. You can go to Leviticus chapter 13 if you want a good stomach-wrenching chapter to read. You can read what the directions that were given to the priest under the law of how they were to diagnose leprosy. Verses there that speak of the color of the skin, of of the flesh that appears in the raw sores, whether it oozes from within, whether there's an issue. or You you see, the whole point is is that for leprosy to be leprosy, it had to be something more than just skin deep. This is not just a problem with my skin. This is not just a problem with my hand. It's systemic. The problem's you. You're the leper. And everything under the law that the leper touched became unclean. Not only was he unclean, and when he was diagnosed as having leprosy, he had to remove himself from clean society, and he had to shout to anyone who would come near, unclean, unclean. But everything he touched became unclean. The house he lived in, he could make a chair. It'd be a wonderful chair except for this one problem. It's an unclean chair. And it's unclean by definition. It's unclean because an unclean man produced it. You see the lessons that God is teaching you through the employment of this one disease of showing you how impossible it is for sinful man to do of himself that which is pleasing to God. This is his condition. Though I realize just as in the Old Testament age, not every man had leprosy. But in essence, here was the one illustration that served to illustrate just how vile sin appears in the eyes of a holy God. Now I want you to notice what this leper does. He comes. He comes to Christ. Mark's gospel says that he knelt before Christ. Luke's gospel says that he fell on his face before Christ. Matthew sums it all up here, just says he came and worshipped. Worshipped. You begin to see that what is required in the act of worship is that we, the sinner, take a place of utter submission before our God. And notice his cry. Oh, how often I try to quote this and try to remember it. Lord, 
if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. If you will, you can. You can make me clean. It's interesting that the Bible is ruthlessly consistent when dealing with leprosy. The leper was never healed. The leper was always cleansed of his leprosy. You see, the main problem with leprosy was not the disease per se, it is the uncleanness that attached it. And so here even the leper uses this biblical language, if you will, you can make me clean. Now I want you to notice, first of all, that this is quite different from the name it and claim it philosophy of our day, especially rampant in Pentecostal circles, those who would, by their so-called faith, manipulate God to do this or that. Uh, Janet put a quote from somebody in the bulletin today that the, in the worst cases, the televangelists today are nothing more than modern sorcerers teaching you and I how to manipulate God and how true that is. That is sort of the root of false Christianity is that we're told that by this we can get God to do that. Say these words and you can get him over the barrel. Exercise this faith and you can make him do what you want him to do. How different that is from biblical Christianity where we find this leper in the direst of circumstances and the straightest of straits comes to our Lord and says, Lord, if you will. Isn't that what our Lord taught us to pray a little earlier? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. Oh, I know what I want. But is this what you would have? And so forth, it is implicit and it's understood in the prayers of the New Testament that though we come before our God with our petitions of what is on our heart and what our heart's crying out for, that we're submitting it all to His sovereign rule and saying, Lord, if, the, if you will, if you would have it this way, this is what we would ask for, but only if. This is your will. Because you see, we're following in the steps of one who prayed in similar circumstances, not my will, but thy will be done. We don't always know what our Lord's will is, what God's will. When our loved one is laying on the deathbed, when our child is sick, when our business is failing, When all our world is crumbling down around us, we know what we want, but we don't always know what our God would have. And you say, well, surely if God's will be done, then everything would be humpty-dory. Well, God's will was done in the life of Job, and he lost everything he had. Lost his possessions, lost his children, lost his health eventually. What did Job do? Scripture says Job fell on his face and worshipped God, saying, Naked came I from the womb, naked shall I return thither to the grave. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is God's doing. If anyone had the right to say the devil did it, Job had the right. You know, the devil really did do it. In his case. But the devil did it, as we understand from the first chapter of Job, with the express permission of God. Yes, Satan, you can take away his possessions. Yes, you can take away his children. You can bring the storm. You can bring the Chaldeans. You can bring his life. What he knows is the good things. You can bring that to an end. And Job recognizes that fact. The Lord has done this. 
Even old Eli. You remember Eli had those worthless sons of his as priests. And when God brought word through Samuel that in a day he and his sons would be, would be killed, Eli responds, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth right in his sight. He's in charge. He's the boss. He's the sovereign. He's God. And it's not my job to tell God what to do. And it doesn't mean that because we are faithful Christians that we're going to escape these things. I keep being reminded of the letter that Jesus sent to the church in Smyrna. In the book of Revelation, one of those seven letters to the seven churches, where he tells that church, you're going to have tribulation ten days. Some of you are going to be put to death. But be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Notice he didn't say, be faithful and I'll keep you from death, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see, this is what faith truly is. Faith is not this name it and claim it stuff. Faith is this humble, humble submission and subjection and subjugation of my life, placing my life in the hands of my sovereign God, realizing and acknowledging That what he does is right. He makes no mistakes. And if he has brought this in my life, it's for a reason, it's for a purpose. And in the midst of it all, I bless his name. Here's a leper. As horrible a situation as it was imaginable in the first century. On his face before Christ. Worshipping. Saying, Lord, if you will, you can. That, by the way, is the biggest difference between what passes for Christianity so much of the time in our day and true biblical Christianity. This modern version says God always wants to. He's always willing. Isn't that what it says? He always wants you healthy, wealthy, happy. He wants, but, but what's the problem then? Why aren't I healthy, wealthy, happy? Well, there's this problem, you see. God can't get around. He wants to, but He can't. And The can't may be because the devil's keeping him from it, or it may be because you're keeping him from it, or perhaps it's your sin keeping him from it. But you see, God would, but he can't. Biblical Christianity reverses that and says he can. I'm just not sure he will. He might. But if he wants to, he can. That was the old cry of the psalmist to David. David, where's your God? The heathen said, mocking him. Where's your God? He's in the heavens. What's he doing up there? And David responded, anything he pleases. That's God. The one who's in charge. Quit messing around. Quit fooling around. You know, when you're in the department store haggling over the sales receipt, it doesn't do any good. Talk to the gal there behind the machine at the checkout line. Go to find somebody who's in charge. My friend, if you're going to pray to somebody, don't waste your time praying to this God who wants to, this heavenly Santa Claus that just wants to give you and shower you good things, but he just can't do it. Go to the one who's in charge. Find out who's God, who's running the show, whose will will be done. Pray to him. Don't waste your breath praying that other. All right, I'll quit preaching. Get back here. All right. I want you to notice the response of our Lord here. And there's a number of possible responses. First of all, Christ could simply have ignored the man. Could have done absolutely nothing. 
After all, if all he came to do was simply to reaffirm the law of Moses, you have to understand that the law couldn't do anything for a guy in this fellow's shoes. I mean, the law could diagnose him as a leper, and the law could diagnose if and when he was ever cleansed of his leprosy. But that's all the law could do. It could diagnose the condition, but it had no cure. It had no remedy. The law could tell you what your problem was, but the law could offer you no solution to the problem. And so our Lord could have just ignored the man and said, Well, I'll just leave you to the consequences. Or, number two, the Lord could have condemned the man could have said, now you shouldn't be a leper. Now, as I pointed out, the leper certainly was no more sinful than anyone else, but he was sinful. And so our Lord simply could have said, you're simply reaping the consequences of your sin. Indeed, in your case, those consequences are very evident and very manifest where they may not be in others. But nevertheless, what complaint can you have? You're simply reaping what you have sown. You're a sinner. Here's the judgment that's upon sin. Big deal. So what? I leave you in your sin. Or, number three, Jesus could have taught him. He could say, you could. You could think clean thoughts. I mean, after all, you know, you're vile and you're an unclean person, but you could be the best leper on the face of the earth. Think clean thoughts. Or just imagine that your disease is gone. A little mind over matter here. You know, a little psycho babble. Just, just think healthy stuff. I, I reminded of that story of this Indian, not, not a Western Indian, but an Eastern Indian in India, living in the midst of such a pluralistic society, the Muslims, the Hindus, Christians, Buddhists, so forth. He was a Christian. And one of his friends asked him, he says, why are you a Christian? He says, well, I'll tell you. I was walking along and I fell into this open pit and I was severely injured. And I couldn't extricate myself from this pit and I was laying there dying. And I looked up and Mohammed walked by. And Muhammad looked down and saw me lying at the bottom of the pit and he says, you shouldn't have fallen in the pit. He said, a little while later, I looked up and Buddha walked by. And he said, Buddha saw me in the pit and he said for me to close my eyes and to imagine that I wasn't in the pit. And he said, a little while later, Jesus walked by. And saw me in the pit. And he climbed down. And he put me on his shoulders. And he carried me out. And he said, that's why I'm a Christian. You see, Jesus could have taken those other tacks. He could have just ignored him. He could have left him to the consequences of his sin and to the law. Or he could have taught him to be the best leper he could possibly be. But oh, my friend, there was no one who expected him to do what he did. What he did was the most unexpected action. Because you see, he stretched forth his arm and he touched him. 
you have to understand that that's the last thing a clean man would do under the law. Holy men got to be holy by avoiding contact with people like this leper. For you see, under the law of Moses, cleanliness did not contaminate uncleanliness. It's the other way around. That which is unclean contaminates that which is clean. For instance, if you have a plate, the law is full of laws like this, by the way. This is just a sample. If you've got a plate you're fixing to eat on and you put some an unclean thing in the plate, the plate being clean doesn't make the thing you put in there clean. The thing that's unclean that you put in the plate makes the plate unclean. That makes sense? You're contaminated, sort of like cold viruses. You know, when I shake hands with somebody who's got a cold, they're going to catch health. <laughs> you know, I'm healthy. They're going to catch my health or I'm going to catch their cold. It works that way. It contaminates uncleanliness or uncleanness contaminates that which is clean. Always, without exception, under the law, that's the way it worked. Except in this case. There's all kinds of ways to be unclean under the law. First of all, you can be unclean by eating unclean stuff, unclean food. You who were there at the banquet last night, we have got into some of that unclean stuff. You see, you could eat seafood, but under the law, if it didn't have scales, it was unclean. I don't know of any frogs that has scales. Advance warning, you can be somewhere else next to Valentine's. Yeah. Anyway, uh, totally yours. We were eating frog legs, among other things. Creepy, crimey, slimy things, no scales, would have been unclean to a Jew. We're going to feast on a little bit of swine back here, a little swine dining after our service this morning. Unclean, because to be a clean animal had to chew the cud and have a cloven hoof. Pig has a cloven hoof, but doesn't chew the cud. In other words, you could be unclean by what you ate. You could be unclean if you had an issue of blood, a hemorrhage of some sort. You could be unclean by contaminant being touching that which is dead, coming into contact with a dead body, or being in a house where a person dies. All of these were ways that you can be contaminated. But the law knew of no exception. It knew of no possibility of that which is unclean being cleansed. By that which is clean. And yet here our Lord stretches forth his hands, touches the leper, and says, I will, and the man instantly is cleansed. Now you have to understand that this is not just like some of the modern Pentecostal healings, you know, got rid of my headache or my rheumatoid arthritis or whatever. This is not psychosomatic. Luke's account tells us that this was a man full of leprosy. Leprosy in its advanced stages. And the man is instantly cleansed. Do you realize three times our Lord did something like this? There was a woman with an issue of blood, unclean, under the law, who said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. And she did. And she was cleansed. And he said, who touched me? This disciple said, that's a crazy question. We're in this crowd. Everybody's thronging it. No, who touched me? For I felt virtue, power go forth out of me, said our Lord. 
Do you understand that in the case of Jesus, it's not the uncleanness contaminating him. It is the power that is in him eradicating, cleansing the source of uncleanness. Don't you suppose there would have been some good old scribes and Pharisees? Those folks, you know, dot every I and cross every T according to the law. Don't you know some of those folks are in this crowd that's following Jesus and they would have loved nothing better than to have condemned him for touching a man like this who's unclean. And yet, how are you going to condemn him? When the man he touches is instantly made clean. How do you condemn this woman with the issue of blood when that flow of blood is instantly staunched when she touches him? Or the third case, the widow's son of Nain, carrying him out of town on the funeral bier. The funeral procession headed out to the cemetery as Jesus and his disciples are headed into town. And what does he do? But he walks over and does the unthinkable, touches that funeral bier and says, young man, get up. And he does. Do you see what I'm trying to illustrate? And what, what Matthew, why, why has he chosen, as it were, to tell us of this story right here? He's telling us that talk is cheap, but our Lord is able to back up in his actions and in his deeds what he says from his mouth. He speaks, and it's done. Oh, the Old Testament prophets, some of the New Testament apostles performed healings, but always in the name of another. You remember when James and John were coming out of the temple that day, and man, they were lame and asking, begging for alms. And Peter looks down at him and says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to thee. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man jumps up and leaping and jumping around and causing a ruckus. A big crowd gathers. You know the story. And James and John, all these people looking at them, and James, uh, I mean, James and John, Peter and John, Peter says, why are you looking at us? (laughs) We're just common people. We're not anything special. Why are you looking at us? It's the name of Jesus that has made this man whole. You see, that's typically the way it is with an Old Testament prophet who heals in the name of the Lord or, or one apostle who heals in the name of another. Jesus doesn't heal in anybody else's name. He says, I will. I will have it this way. Be cleansed. Do you understand the authority and the power that are in those words? Someone was just asking me about, Sonny, as you, the other night, Monday night, we was talking about the miraculous works of Christ. And to, indeed, the whole gospel stands or falls upon the authenticity of these miracles. Because these miracles are signs. Signs to indicate whether Jesus is who he claimed to be. And the New Testament record is that not only did he say that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, he came and did those things that only the Messiah and the Son of God could do. He would say to blind eyes and deaf ears, be opened. And they were. He would say to the tongue of the dumb, be loosened. And it was. He would say to those who were possessed by demons, to the demons themselves, be gone, and they would go. And most amazingly, he would say to a sinful man, thy sins be forgiven. He's either the Son of God, or he's the biggest liar this world's ever seen. Take your pick. One or the other. 
Can't be a good teacher. Can't be a good philosopher because of what he said about himself. He's either lying or he's telling the truth. Well, we come now to the final little scene here where Jesus instructs this man not to tell anyone but to go to the priest. Now keep in mind that Jesus at this time is up in Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, and he's sending this man back to Jerusalem. You see, the man, when he became a leper in the first place, had gone to Jerusalem to the priest, and they had diagnosed his case and kicked him out of clean society. Now he's to go back to the priests. But this time he's to go back to the priest to having them examine him and pronounce him clean. Notice that Jesus said, I want you to go back to the priest and offer this offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Now, what do you suppose he means by that? What's the important thing going on here? Basically, Jesus is sending these guys a postcard. He sent them a letter in the person of this cleansed leper that somebody's running around Galilee cleansing lepers. Somebody has power to take away uncleanness. That's the letter. That's the postcard. That's the announcement that when this guy hits Jerusalem, they're all going to realize, wait a minute, didn't we diagnose this guy as a leper? Doesn't he have leprosy? Didn't we kick him out? Yes, they did. And now here he turns up, whole, clean, with a story of one who touched him and said, I will. My friend, the postcard is to be understood like this. Messiah's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said, offer the offering that Moses commanded. You see, in Leviticus 13 is the directions for the priest to diagnose the leper. In Leviticus 14 is the ceremony that's to take place if and when a leper is ever cleansed of his leprosy. And I won't go all the, the details, but the main part was this. The man was to bring two birds. See if, you, see if you understand anything of this. It's a picture. It's a foreshadowing. But see if you can figure out what this means. Man was to bring two birds to the priest. They'd have a bowl of water in an earthen vessel. The priest would take one of those birds and rest its head off. And he would squeeze the blood out of that bird into that bowl of water. Then he'd take the second bird and dip it, get it good and wet, with that bloody water. And then he'd let it loose right over the leper. So that the leper, he who had been a leper, is now sprinkled with that bloody water as that bird flies up into the heaven. Now it's a picture. It's a shadow. Shadows, of course, are very fuzzy. I can tell that's a hand. I couldn't tell you whose hand that is, but that's a hand. I get a rough picture, a rough outline, and the shadows contained in the Old Testament law that looked ahead to the gospel were indeed rough, fuzzy images, but I suspect many of you can figure out what those two birds are signifying, what it's all about, that this is, of course, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and His sprinkling with blood and water, John says. Out of His side comes blood and water. Who was it? The old hymn writer says, Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath 
and make me pure. And that is what Christ gives us. Well, I will close. I will remind you that in our natural condition, we're all lepers before God. Vile, horrid, obnoxious. Now, leprosy, I said in our natural condition, you have to understand that man's natural condition wasn't sinful. It's something that entered the picture in the fall of man. We became sinful. We became lepers, as it were. And what we have in the gospel is the setting forth of someone, a person, who is able to remove the uncleanness of sin. That's what it's all about. That there is one who is able, if he wills, to take away the uncleanness, the vileness. Now, my question is, why then aren't we beating down heaven's door if we understand this? If the message of the gospel comes to me and to you, why is it that any remain lepers? Why are not all cleansed? Well, part of it is that I'm sure many of you sitting here today say, you know, I just don't believe this. I don't believe that this is my case. I don't believe that I'm as sinful, as wicked, as vile as that preacher has described me to be. I just don't believe that's my situation. I don't believe that's my case. Well, may I turn your attention to the Bible, starting about Genesis 1-1 through the rest of it, and look at the diagnosis that part of what's going on in the Bible is God's diagnosis of my disease, of my problem convincing me, throwing up in my face how my sin appears to him. Whether it looks that way to me, whether it looks that way to anybody else in the world, this is the way it appears to my God. And prophet after prophet will teach me of that. I would exhort you, study the word, for the diagnosis of your case is found therein. Or some of you are saying, well, I understand that I've got a problem, but you see, it's really not all that serious, and I expect I'll outgrow it, or, you know, it'll disappear one of these days. Oh, don't delude yourself, my friend. Sinful hearts grow only harder and harder with time, more calloused. Or you say, well, I know that there's a problem with this portion. You know, I've got a problem, a sore on my hand, but the the problem doesn't affect my whole. My friend, the problem is systemic. Your problem's you. Your heart Not just your actions. Perhaps for a little while you can turn over a new leaf. You can straighten up and fly right. You can do some clean stuff. Your problem is that heart from which all the actions of man flow. What you need is a cleansed heart. And then perhaps if you're convinced of the reality of the problem, maybe you don't believe that he is able to do anything about it. May I first of all point you to his words? I will. Why in the Lord, if this, why in the world, if this is the Son of God, why would he come into this world to hobnob with people like this? You ever thought of that? Why would, if he is the Son of God, why would he spend his time running around the rift with a riffraff? Dealing with lepers. I mean, that's what you want to do. You know, let's go out on a date. 
You know, let's go up to the hospital. Let's sit around intensive care and watch somebody gasp for air. Sound like a fun time? Big time? Big date? You know, let's have some entertainment tonight. Let's go down to the leper colony. My friend, that's, those are the places you avoid. Right? And Jesus made a beeline to places like that. Why? Only know of one explanation. Love, mercy, grace. That He's showing you what God is like. Oh, if you're outside of Christ today, would you flee to Him? Will you cry to Him? Will you fall before Him? Will you plead with Him? Lord, if you will, you can. And I set before you one who's done it before and does it again. I look around this room and I see a bunch of, well, a bunch of lepers. (laughs) Used to be. Used to be. Used to be. What happened? Someone came along and said, I will. Be clean. Be clean. And something happened. We call it conversion. We call it salvation, redemption. We have a lot of theological names for it. But let me just sum it up. You're cleansed. Washed. Who are these? The Apostle John said in Revelation, who are this great multitude out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue as he sees this vision of the people of Christ, the elect, the redeemed, if you will? Who are these people? And the answer is these are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Yes, there's cleansing to be found in His name. Let's pray. Father, help us to fully appreciate the magnitude, the normity of what we read here. The the shock that it would have been to a person in Jesus' day to have witnessed this event. Father, it's so ho-hum to us. We, We see nothing unusual here. But Lord, amaze us at the condescension of your Son in dealing with sinful men, in being willing to cleanse the defilement and the uncleanness of man, of washing them, washing them in his own blood. Thank you for such a one as he. And Lord, may we understand the great insult, the despite that we do to the spirit of your grace when we ignore your gracious entreaties to come to him, to come for cleansing, to come and submit our lives, to cast our lives by faith into the hands of the Son of God, to turn over the reins of our life into His loving, kind, merciful hands. May we come, Father, if we're outside of Christ today, may we come as this leper, running, falling, worshiping, saying, Lord, if you will, you can. And thank you, Father, for the testimony of your word, for the examples that we have of person after person in the Scripture and even in our own day, life after life, that can say, yes, he was willing in my case. And if he does it for one, why not Why not for another? All oh, the wonderful promises we have that there's healing and cleansing to those who come in faith to Jesus Christ. May that be an encouragement to anyone outside the kingdom today. And Lord, may we who have been touched, we who have felt the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, may we never get over it. May we fall in love again today with the wonderful person of our Savior. 
May we devote our lives to Him. May we walk in His steps, this One who gave Himself for us. Help us, Father, to understand these things, to have them applied to our hearts by Your Spirit. May You teach us, may You instruct us of our need of Christ and of the remedy that You have given in Him for man's sin. Help us as we pursue Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.